This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Talk for Two. Dr. Cyril Wecht is our guest today on this, the fourth day of Mystery Week. He is a name known to many in forensics. He has consulted on some of the most high-profile cases. Dr. Wecht is a forensic pathologist. Put bluntly, he is somebody who studies dead bodies and performs autopsies with an eye toward figuring out how a person died and maybe even who killed them. Dr. Wecht has released a new memoir, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, where he posits his theories on the many, many infamous cases he worked throughout his six-decade career. It's available on Amazon, and I have linked to it in the description box on talkfor2.com. In this interview, we begin by talking about what makes one interested in studying corpses. But the conversation quickly turned to some of his theories regarding the deaths of several famous murder victims. His theory on Jean Benet Ramsey, in particular, varies from the mainstream. Here now to tell us how the dead talk to him, our interview with Dr. Cyril Wecht. Dr. Cyril Wecht, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. I hope you and your family are all well. Well, thank you very much. I want to begin uh, by talking a little bit about your life and your career. We'll talk about the book towards the end. In the middle, I want to get into some of the the cases that you consulted on. But first, I really want to know, we've never had a medical examiner uh, on the program before. How did you come to an interest in this field of medicine? Well, uh, at first I had decided... uh, after a couple of years in medical school, that I wanted to look into the possibility of earning a law degree and uh, combining uh, all of the um, activities that one deals with at the interface of law and medicine. So I searched around and finally contacted someone who was an authority at that time, got good information, made a decision that I would uh, acquire a law degree. So I worked it out during my residency in pathology at the University Veterans Administration Hospital after graduation from medical school and a year of internship that I would uh, go to law school. So they gave me permission to do it as long as I kept up with my work. So I was doing full-time residency and full-time law school. I did that for two years at the University of Pittsburgh. Then the Air Force grabbed me, and I was in there for two years as a captain pathologist uh, at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. When I got out, I uh, needed one more year of forensic pathology in my third year of law school. I did that at the University of Maryland Law School in the evening and my forensic pathology at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner of Maryland in Baltimore. So that's what I decided to do. And I've been very pleased um, to uh, have these combined degrees in law and medicine You do not have to have a law degree to be a forensic pathologist, but knowing about the law and knowing about how attorneys function is very helpful in dealing with all of the matters that you encounter uh, as a forensic pathologist and at the medical legal interface, uh, medical malpractice, homicide, all kinds of personal injuries, rape, sexual assault, drug cases, product liability, wrongful death. You name it. So that's the field. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I loved about reading. I've just started. I just cracked open your book, uh, took a perusal on some of the cases you talk about. And you talk about it using both your forensic pathology experience and your understanding of the law and how lawyers practice law. What is the one thing that juries don't understand about forensic pathology? what, what, Where are those issues when you go to testify that could trip a jury up? Well, uh, one thing that uh, people don't understand, including an awful lot of doctors, uh, is that forensic pathology, like other fields of medicine, is not an absolute science. Mm-hmm. Mathematics, <clears throat> physics, and chemistry are absolute sciences in the field of medicine, only cellular DNA is an absolute science. So the people can have different opinions. That's number one. 
Um, so people get uh, sometimes uh, very upset and uh, surprised. How can there be two different opinions as to uh, the circumstances leading to the death and maybe even as to the cause of death and certainly the manner of death? That's number one. Number two, what people don't understand is that forensic pathologists working in medical examiner's offices have a frequent contact with and develop, uh, you know, just personal professional relationships with law enforcement. And therefore, a lot of my colleagues, in my opinion, uh, bend over backwards uh, to work with and accommodate uh, law enforcement officers. And that is why I uh, have been you know, somewhat successful with my medical legal consultations. I don't say that in a boastful fashion, mm-hmm. but what I mean is that, you know, many cases over the years, which uh, have been labeled one way or another by a local medical examiner, uh, juries have turned around and uh, arrived at a different opinion following my testimony. It wasn't anything magical or special on my part other than a presentation of the facts and analysis of those facts that uh, gave them a, a different perspective of that particular death. Well, you bring that up and you talk about that in the book, about walking that fine line, about getting paid very well to consult. But at the end of the day, you're very you're very open if you don't feel you can come to the conclusion, whichever side is hiring you to consult, you can't come to a favorable conclusion. Therefore, you won't do it. Is that a hard line to walk or is that something very easy for somebody as principled as yourself? Well, um, I don't want to make myself into some fantastically uh, overly principled person. Uh, What I will say is that I have tried very hard Mm -hmm. in my practice now of 58 years uh, to maintain my objectivity, Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with these matters in an unbiased fashion. And therefore, I am proud to say that I think I have retained my credibility. It it won't take long in this business if uh, people come to believe that you're available uh, and that you'll give opinions based upon what they need uh, and just bend and twist facts. Uh, So I'm very proud of the fact that I continue to receive consultations from attorneys all over the country and sometimes from other countries in the world. Um, After 58 years, people know that I'm going to give an honest opinion. And so far as declining cases, sometimes that happens. And I've had some big cases where I gave opinions that the attorneys did not like. And so I did not then uh, testify Mm -hmm. Uh, that that happens. Now, you're a Pennsylvania guy. I'm a Pennsylvania guy, too, originally. How important has living and working in Allegheny County been to your career? Well, I don't know that Allegheny County is different, frankly, from any other um, you know, relatively small, uh, medium-sized metropolitan area. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything special. Mm-hmm. But what uh, practicing in Allegheny County did was to allow me to run for coroner so that I was coroner of Allegheny County for 20 years, two yep. separate 10-year periods. And that is what really uh, gave me a great deal of background in dealing with these matters and coming to understand how the medical examiner and a forensic pathologist needs to function with judges, criminal um, attorneys, prosecution, defense, civil attorneys, plaintiff and defense, uh, public health agencies, uh, families, and so on. Uh, that is what you get from being a coroner. You don't get that uh, right away just by becoming a medical examiner doing autopsies. Right. Totally, totally very good insight there. want to switch to these cases that you've worked on, two in particular that fascinate me. I want to start with the, I'm sure you get asked about this a million times over, the Jean Benet Ramsey case. What is fascinating to me about that is it's like the clue board game of murder mysteries. It all happened in, in that house. Very, very unlikely that there was an intruder. You talk about this in the book. Um, very unlikely that there was an intruder, yet this puzzle has had a lot of moving pieces that haven't exactly fit for decades. And you posit something in the book, I'll let you explain, that I hadn't even thought of. That, that's yes. A, so what is your feeling on what happened in that house in 96? I do not believe there was an outside intruder. I think that's a sheer uh, poppycock. Mm-hmm. I believe that what happened was that John Ramsey um, 
was doing things with the little girl who mm-hmm. was a surrogate, uh, Patsy Ramsey, his wife, former Miss West Virginia, had stage four ovarian cancer. She had had surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. She was out of the sex business. And I think the little girl uh, was a, a surrogate. I believe that the father was engaged in um, uh, not not uh, penile per vagina, but mm-hmm. uh, other, other kinds of uh, sexual games. Uh, there's microscopic physical evidence of that present in the autopsy, which uh, uh, people seem to have missed or not paid attention to. And I believe that the rope around the little girl's neck, designed to give him pleasure vicariously, not her, led to a vagal reflex, the vagus nerve, one on the right, one on the left, tenth of uh, uh, 12 cranial nerves coming down from the brain, inside the neck, into the chest cavity, fibers going to the lungs and heart, controlling respiratory and cardiac activity when you get pressure on the neck. And it doesn't have to mean firm pressure like strangulation, and I don't believe that uh, he in any way attempted to strangle her. But sometimes pressure um, may lead to a vagal reflex, causing the heart to beat slowly, bradycardia, resulting in cardiorespiratory arrest. This is what I believe happened. An eight and a half inch fracture of her skull produced only seven cc's of blood. That's a teaspoon and a half. There's no way in the world that a smash on the head producing that kind of a fracture is going to cause a subdural hemorrhage of seven cc's. It's mm-hmm. going to produce a lot of bleeding before you die. That blow was inflicted when she was already dead or dying to make it appear that she had been assaulted by an outside intruder. And then the cockamamie ransom note, we represent a small foreign faction and the demand of $118,000, a nice round figure, right? $118,000, which is exactly <laughs> the bonus that Ramsey had received from his company the year before. Yeah, uh, it's, it's this year. And then after having, according to the uh, intruder theory, the guy coming into the um, home without awakening anybody, knowing where the little girl's room was, and then going down a back set of stairs into a room in the basement that the homicide detectives who went there at 6 o'clock in the morning looking for the body never even knew to look into, didn't even know there was such a room. John Ramsey took his then best friend, later his worst enemy, another multi-millionaire businessman named Fleet White down there, and they opened that room at 1 o'clock, seven hours later. And uh, there indeed was the girl's body. So anyway, uh, this outside intruder, uh, he knows how to do all that. He knows how to find pen and paper in the middle of the night in a strange house. He uh, writes the ransom note. And then after having done all of that, he leaves. What does he forget? One thing. He forgets to take the body. 45-pound package. (laughs) You've gone to all of this incredible, perverted but courageous activity. And you've written the note. So, my God, but then you leave the house and you leave the body with the ransom note? Think about that. That's your that's your outside intruder. Right. So what went wrong with the investigation? You allude to their wealth as playing a factor. Was it a botched investigation or were they just too rich to be considered? A combination of things. They had had only one homicide in Boulder County, Colorado that year and one, I think, the year before. They had no no experience at all. Uh, they did not call in the Colorado um, State Police. They did not call in the FBI. Um, uh, they proceeded to handle this. They were in F. Number one. Number two, they never interrogated John and Patsy Ramsey immediately in separate rooms. They did not do that. That's the first thing you would do, obviously, in a case like this where a child is missing. You want to interrogate the parents right away. They never, never did that. And then you have the DA, Alec Alex Hunter, um, who uh, had a plea bargain rate of 98.5%. Uh, you know, I'm not prosecutorially biased, and I understand um, uh, how the law works, but uh, Alex Hunter was not interested in pursuing cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have an inexperienced um, a DA who should never have been a prosecutor, and you have the totally uh, inexperienced local police and uh, the failure to do those kinds of things. And that resulted in the case then being bungled from the very beginning. Then Patsy Ramsey died and, uh, you know, a couple of attempts to open it up were thwarted and the family succeeded themselves and through others in getting these wild assertions and allegations made, sometimes against specific other people. One guy who was a neighbor looked like Santa Claus. I tried to blame him 
and uh, then they came up with uh, you know the outside intruder theory and uh, they managed then to wiggle by and that's what happened yeah the other case i want to talk to you about before we talk more about the book uh is a case you talk about in the book that i followed growing up and that's the casey anthony case and i very specifically want to ask you you talk about the csi effect and juries needing needing a smoking gun what could the prosecution have done differently as it relates maybe to the the situation with young Kaylee's body to to make it clear, hey, we don't have the physical evidence, but this is how it lines up. Because that is a case I think we all agree should have been a slam dunk, and she walked. Yes, absolutely. And that was a case I started off by being consulted by the um, defense attorney, and uh, I didn't like it at all, and... Uh, uh, I got out of the case early on. I agree with you completely. That case should have been a slam dunk. I think one mistake was they overdid it. They should not have gone for first-degree murder. Uh, I think uh, that kind of uh, <clears throat> held the jury back a little bit. Uh, you know, there's a homicide case, no question. Um, manslaughter, second degree. But first degree, which, uh, you know, might have led to capital punishment, I think turned off. And the second thing was that uh, they didn't do as good a job as they should have done in presenting all of the evidence. Uh, This case has bothered me greatly from an emotional standpoint, thinking of what uh, that mother got away with, uh, accusing her own father, the grandfather of the child. I think he was in the courtroom. And she, she said that the child had drowned at the swimming pool and that her father had taken the child and buried it. Can you believe that? absolutely disgusting yeah yeah well that's why we have double jeopardy you know what's done is done and oh yeah can't write that wrong but that's right um this book is a fascinating look at your life in forensic pathology why now why write this now and what prompted it well um i'm not retiring but i am you know i may be getting toward uh, the end of my career another couple of years or, or whatever um not that I have that much free time, but I felt if I'm ever going to do something like this, I, I would and, and should do it now. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I felt I you know, kind of owed it to myself uh, to set forth a lot of things, not just on cases about which I have written and published in many other books, including a book, for example, on who killed John Benet Ramsey. That's a paperback all by mm-hmm. itself. But I wanted to set forth things that have happened to me, some of the legal trials and travails, uh, two trials in which I was accused uh, of of felonies, one in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in federal western Pennsylvania, uh, 84 felony count and so on. I had to deal with that over a period of four years, cost me millions and millions of dollars. and I wanted to show how prosecutorial offices can be and are. And it's not, I'm not saying it's frequent, but I don't know that it's so rare either, used in a subverted, perverted fashion for political, personal reasons, vendettas, um, political <clears throat> uh, people that uh, they want to uh, handle. Uh, so uh, putting all of that together, um, I decided that I would do that. Great. It's a fantastic read. Real quick before we let you go, your position on the JFK uh, assassination is very, very well documented. I had Oliver Stone, uh, who, of course, did the JFK movie, which is not uh, yes. kind to the Warren Commission, had him on this program. Will we ever get the real truth? Well, you know, I was a consultant to Oliver Stone in that movie, and he yes. and I have become good friends. I've been dealing with the JFK assassination uh, since 1966 when I gave a paper at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. And in 1972, I was the first non-government appointed, non-government sponsored forensic pathologist given access to the autopsy materials at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And that's when I pointed out that the president's brain had not been examined as it should have been. And the president's brain was missing. It was gone. Um, And uh, the reason for that is because examination of the brain would have shown conclusively that the president was struck in the head by two bullets, one from the right front, a picket fence behind a picket fence on the grassy knoll, another one from the rear. Um, 
the Warren Commission report is sheer, unadulterated nonsense. Uh, the basis, the sine qua non of the Warren Commission report is the single bullet theory uh, that has one bullet <clears throat> producing seven wounds and two men changing directions in midair, right to left, uh, up to down, uh, emerging after breaking two large bones. And John Conley, a six foot four, big bone Texan, uh, near pristine with no deformity at all, except at the base a little bit from the impact. The copper jacket, a lead core bullet, completely intact with the weight loss of only one and a half percent of its original weight. That's the single bullet theory upon which the Warren Commission report is based. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, yeah, people should get into that. Uh, do I ever think it'll be solved? I used to think so. Uh, 40, 30, 20 years ago. I I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I... I God, I would hope so. Um, all the evidence is there, radiological, neurological, neurosurgical, pathological. The acoustic evidence is uh, a very detailed study of the acoustics in uh, Dealey Plaza that day by uh, two groups of the most eminent acoustics experts in the world. And none of that has seemed to have uh, been able to budge the federal government still withholding tens of thousands of pages uh, on that investigation conducted by the Warren Commission. Unbelievable. Dr. Wecht, thank you so much. I hope you are enjoying your semi-retirement there in Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh many, many times living in Pennsylvania, so I know it well, and I'm sure you served Allegheny County very well. That was truly an eye-opening conversation, and what a career Dr. Wecht has had. You can get his book, the Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht on Amazon by clicking the link in the description on talkfor2.com. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at talkfor2 and Instagram at talkfor2pod. Reach out to me directly at talkfor2cast at gmail.com. And of course, we also have TikTok, which I always forget to mention, at Talk for Two. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Talk for Two. Dr. Cyril Wecht is our guest today on this, the fourth day of Mystery Week. He is a name known to many in forensics. He has consulted on some of the most high-profile cases, Dr. Wecht is a forensic pathologist. Put bluntly, he is somebody who studies dead bodies and performs autopsies with an eye toward figuring out how a person died and maybe even who killed them. Dr. Wecht has released a new memoir, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, where he posits his theories on the many, many infamous cases he worked throughout his six-decade career. It's available on Amazon, and I have linked to it in the description box on talkfor2.com. In this interview, we begin by talking about what makes one interested in studying corpses. But the conversation quickly turned to some of his theories regarding the deaths of several famous murder victims. His theory on Jean Benet Ramsey, in particular, varies from the mainstream. Here now to tell us how the dead talk to him. Our interview with Dr. Cyril Wecht. Dr. Cyril Wecht, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. I hope you and your family are all well. Well, thank you very much. I want to begin uh, by talking a little bit about your life and your career. We'll talk about the book towards the end. In the middle, I want to get into some of the the cases that you consulted on. But first, I really want to know, we've never had a medical examiner uh, on the program before. How did you come to an interest in this field of medicine? Well, uh, at first I had decided uh, after a couple of years in medical school that I wanted to look into 
the possibility of earning a law degree and uh, combining uh, all of the um, activities that one deals with at the interface of law and medicine. So I searched around and finally contacted someone who was an authority at that time. I got good information, made a decision that I would uh, acquire a law degree. So I worked it out during my residency in pathology at the University Veterans Administration Hospital after graduation from medical school and a year of internship that I would uh, go to law school also. They gave me permission to do it as long as I kept up with my work. So I was doing full-time residency and full-time law school. I did that for two years at the University of Pittsburgh. Then the Air Force grabbed me and I was in there for two years as a captain pathologist uh, at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. When I got out, I uh, needed one more year of forensic pathology in my third year of law school. I did that at the University of Maryland Law School in the evening and my forensic pathology at the office of the Chief Medical Examiner of Maryland in Baltimore. So that's what I decided to do. And I've been very pleased um, to uh, have these combined degrees in law and medicine. You do not have to have a law degree to be a forensic pathologist, but knowing about the law and knowing about how attorneys function is very helpful in dealing with all of the matters that you encounter uh, as a forensic pathologist and at the medical legal interface, uh, medical malpractice, <clears throat> homicide, all kinds of personal injuries, rape, sexual assault, drug cases, product liability, wrongful death, you name it. So that's the field. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I loved about reading. I've just started, I just cracked open your book, uh, took a perusal on some of the cases you talk about, and you talk about it using both your forensic pathology experience and your understanding of the law and how lawyers practice law. What is the one thing that juries don't understand about forensic pathology? What, what, where are those issues when you go to testify that could trip a jury up? Well, uh, one thing that uh, people don't understand, including an awful lot of doctors, uh, is that forensic pathology, like other fields of medicine, is not an absolute science. Mm-hmm. Mathematics, <clears throat> physics, and chemistry are absolute sciences. In the field of medicine, only cellular DNA is an absolute science. So the people can have different opinions. That's number one. Um, so people get uh, sometimes uh, very upset and uh, surprised. How can there be two different opinions as to Uh, the circumstances leading to the death, and maybe even as to the cause of death and certainly the manner of death. That's number one. Number two, what people don't understand is that forensic pathologists working in medical examiner's offices have frequent contact with and develop, uh, you know, just personal professional relationships with law enforcement. And therefore, a lot of my colleagues, in my opinion, uh, bend over backwards to work with and accommodate uh, law enforcement officers. And that is why I uh, have been you know, somewhat successful with my medical legal consultations. I don't say that in a boastful fashion, mm-hmm. but what I mean is that, you know, many cases over the years, which uh, have been labeled one way or another by a local medical examiner, uh, juries have turned around and uh, arrived at a different opinion following my testimony. It wasn't anything magical or special on my part, other than a presentation of the facts and analysis of those facts that uh, gave them a a different perspective of that particular death. Well, you bring that up and you talk about that in the book, about walking that fine line, about getting paid very well to consult. But at the end of the day, you're you're very open if you don't feel you can come to the conclusion, whichever side is hiring you to consult, you can't come to a favorable conclusion. Therefore, you won't do it. Is that a hard line to walk or is that something very easy for somebody as principled as yourself? Well, um, I don't want to make myself into uh, some fantastically uh, overly principled person. Uh, What I will say is that I have tried very hard Mm -hmm. in my practice now of 58 years uh, to maintain my objectivity, Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with these matters in an unbiased fashion. And therefore, I am 
proud to say that I think I have retained my credibility. It, it won't take long in this business if uh, people come to believe that you're available and that you'll give opinions based upon what they need and just bend and twist facts. Uh, so I'm very proud of the fact that I continue to receive consultations from attorneys all over the country and sometimes from other countries in the world. Um, after 58 years, people know that I'm going to give an honest opinion. And so far as declining cases, sometimes that happens. And I've had some big cases where I gave opinions that the attorneys did not like. And so I did not then uh, testify. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that happens. Now, you're a Pennsylvania guy. I'm a Pennsylvania guy, too, originally. How important has living and working in Allegheny County been to your career? Well, I don't know that Allegheny County is different, frankly, from any other um, you know, relatively small, uh, medium-sized metropolitan area. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything special. Mm -hmm. But what uh, practicing in Allegheny County did was to allow me to run for coroner, so that I was coroner of Allegheny County for 20 years, two yep. separate 10-year periods. And that is what really uh, gave me a great deal of background in dealing with these matters and coming to understand how the medical examiner and a forensic pathologist needs to function with judges, criminal um, attorneys, prosecution, defense, civil attorneys, plaintiff and defense, public health agencies, families, and so on. Uh, that is what you get from being a coroner. You don't get that uh, right away just by becoming a medical examiner doing autopsies. Right. Totally, totally very good insight there. want to switch to these cases that you've worked on, two in particular that fascinate me. I want to start with the, I'm sure you get asked about this a million times over, the Jean Benet Ramsey case. What is fascinating to me about that is it's like the clue board game of murder mysteries. It all happened in in that house. Very, very unlikely that there was an intruder. You talk about this in the book. Um, very unlikely that there was an intruder. Yet this puzzle has had a lot of moving pieces that haven't exactly fit for decades. And you posit something in the book, I'll let you explain, that I hadn't even thought of. That, that's yes. a, so what is your feeling on what happened in that house in 96? I do not believe there was an outside intruder. I think that's a sheer uh, poppycock. Mm -hmm. I believe that what happened was that John Ramsey um, was doing things with the little girl who mm -hmm. was a surrogate. Uh, Patsy Ramsey, his wife, former Miss West Virginia, had stage four ovarian cancer. She had had surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. She was out of the sex business. And I think the little girl uh, was a, a surrogate. I believe that the father was engaged in... Um, uh, not not uh, penile per vagina, but mm -hmm. uh, other other kinds of uh, sexual games. Uh, there's microscopic uh, physical evidence of that present in the autopsy, which uh, uh, people seem to have missed or not paid attention to. And I believe that the rope around the little girl's neck, designed to give him pleasure vicariously, not her, led to a vagal reflex, the vagus nerve, one on the right, one on the left, tenth of... Uh, and 12 cranial nerves coming down from the brain inside the neck into the chest cavity fibers going to the lungs and heart controlling respiratory and cardiac activity when you get pressure on the neck and it doesn't have to mean firm pressure like strangulation and i don't believe that uh, he in any way attempted to strangle her but sometimes pressure uh, may lead to a vagal reflex causing the heart to beat slowly bradycardia resulting in cardiorespiratory arrest this is what I believe happened. An eight and a half inch fracture of her skull produced only seven cc's of blood. That's a teaspoon and a half. There's no way in the world that a smash on the head producing that kind of a fracture is going to cause a subdural hemorrhage of seven cc's. It's mm -hmm. going to produce a lot of bleeding before you die. That blow was inflicted when she was already dead or dying to make it appear that she had been assaulted by an outside intruder. And then the cockamamie ransom note, we represent a small foreign faction and the demand of $118,000, a nice round figure, right? $118,000, which is exactly <laughs> the bonus that Ramsey had received from his company the year before. Yeah, uh, it's, it's this year. And then after having, according to the uh, intruder theory, the guy coming into the um, 
home without awakening anybody, knowing where the little girl's room was, and then going down a back set of stairs into a room in the basement that the homicide detectives who went there at 6 o'clock in the morning looking for the body never even knew to look into it, didn't even know there was such a room. John Ramsey took his then best friend, later his worst enemy, another multi-millionaire businessman named Fleet White down there, and they opened that room at 1 o'clock seven hours later. And uh, there indeed was the girl's body. So anyway, uh, this outside intruder, uh, he knows how to do all that. He knows how to find pen and paper in the middle of the night in a strange house. He uh, writes the ransom note. And then after having done all of that, he leaves. What does he forget? One thing. He forgets to take the body. 45-pound package. (laughs) You've gone to all of this incredible, perverted but courageous activity. And you've written the note. So, my God, but then you leave the house and you leave the body with the ransom note? Think about that. That's your that's your outside intruder. Right. So what went wrong with the investigation? You allude to their wealth as playing a factor. Was it a botched investigation or were they just too rich to be considered? A combination of things. They had had only one homicide in Boulder County, Colorado that year, and one, I think, the year before. They had no no experience at all. Uh, they did not call in the Colorado um, State Police. They did not call in the FBI. Um, uh, they proceeded to handle this. They were inept. Number one. Number two, they never interrogated John and Patsy Ramsey immediately in separate rooms. They did not do that. That's the first thing you would do, obviously, in a case like this where a child is missing. You want to interrogate the parents right away. They never, never did that. And then you have the DA, Alec Alex Hunter, um, who uh, had a plea bargain rate of 98.5%. Uh, you know, I'm not prosecutorially biased, and I understand um, uh, how the law works, but uh, Alex Hunter was not interested in pursuing cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have an inexperienced um, <clears throat> a DA who should never have been a prosecutor, and you have the totally uh, inexperienced local police and uh, the failure to do those kinds of things. And that resulted in the case then uh, being bungled from the very beginning. Then Patsy Ramsey uh, died and, uh, you know, a couple of attempts to open it up were thwarted and the family succeeded themselves and through others in getting these wild assertions and allegations made, sometimes against specific other people. One guy who was a neighbor looked like Santa Claus. I tried to blame him and uh, then they came up with uh, you know the outside intruder theory and uh, they managed then to wiggle by and that's what happened yeah the other case i want to talk to you about before we talk more about the book uh is a case you talk about in the book that i followed growing up and that's the casey anthony case and i very specifically want to ask you you talk about the csi effect and juries needing needing a smoking gun what could the prosecution have done differently as it relates maybe to the the situation with young Kaylee's body to to make it clear, hey, we don't have the physical evidence, but this is how it lines up? Because that is a case I think we all agree should have been a slam dunk, and she walked. Yes, absolutely. That was a case I started off by being consulted by the defense attorney, and uh, I didn't like it at all, and... Uh, uh, I got out of the case early on. I agree with you completely. That case should have been a slam dunk. I think one mistake was they overdid it. They should not have gone for first-degree murder. Uh, I think uh, that kind of uh, <clears throat> held the jury back a little bit. Uh, you know, there's a homicide case, no question. Um, manslaughter, second degree. But first degree, which, uh, you know, might have led to capital punishment, I think turned off. And the second thing was that uh, they didn't do as good a job as they should have done in presenting all of the evidence. Uh, This case has bothered me greatly from an emotional standpoint, thinking of what uh, that mother got away with, uh, accusing her own father, the grandfather of the child. I think he was in the courtroom. And she, she said that the child had drowned at the swimming pool and that her father had taken the child and buried it. Can you believe that? absolutely disgusting yeah yeah well that's why we have double jeopardy you know what's done is done and oh yeah can't write that wrong but that's right 
Um, this book is a fascinating look at your life in forensic pathology. Why now? Why write this now? And what prompted it? Well, um, I'm not retiring, but I am, you know, I may be getting toward uh, the end of my career, another couple of years or, or whatever. Um, not that I have that much free time, but I felt if I'm ever going to do something like this, I, I would and, and should do it now. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I felt I you know, kind of owed it to myself uh, to set forth a lot of things, not just on cases about which I have written and published in many other books, including a book, for example, on who killed John Benet Ramsey. That's a paperback all by mm-hmm. itself. But I wanted to set forth things that have happened to me, some of the legal trials and travails, uh, Mm -hmm. two trials in which I was accused uh, of of felonies, one in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in federal western Pennsylvania, uh, 84 felony count and so on. I had to deal with that over a period of four years, cost me millions and millions of dollars. and I wanted to show how prosecutorial offices can be and are, and it's not, I'm not saying it's frequent, but I don't know that it's so rare either, used in a subverted, perverted fashion for political, personal reasons, vendettas, um, political <clears throat> uh, people that uh, they want to uh, handle. Uh, so uh, putting all of that together, um, I decided that I would do that. Great. It's a fantastic read. Real quick before we let you go, your position on the JFK uh, assassination is very, very well documented. I had Oliver Stone, uh, who, of course, did the JFK movie, which is not uh, yes. kind to the Warren Commission, had him on this program. Will we ever get the real truth? Well, you know, I was a consultant to Oliver Stone in that movie, and he yes. and I have become good friends. I've been dealing with the JFK assassination uh, since 1966 when I gave a paper at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. And in 1972, I was the first non-government appointed, non-government sponsored forensic pathologist given access to the autopsy materials at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And that's when I pointed out that the president's brain had not been examined as it should have been. And the president's brain was missing. It was gone. Um, and uh, the reason for that is because examination of the brain would have shown conclusively that the president was struck in the head by two bullets, one from the right front, a picket fence behind a picket fence on the grassy knoll, and another one from the rear. Um, the Warren Commission report is sheer, unadulterated nonsense. Uh, the basis, the sine qua non of the Warren Commission report is the single bullet theory uh, that has one bullet <clears throat> producing seven wounds and two men changing directions in midair, right to left, uh, up to down, uh, emerging after breaking two large bones in John Conley, a six foot four big bone Texan, uh, near pristine with no deformity at all, except at the base a little bit from the impact, the copper jacket, a lead core bullet completely intact with a weight loss of only one and a half percent of its original weight. That's the single bullet theory upon which the Warren Commission report is based. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, yeah, people should get into that. Do I ever think it'll be solved? I used to think so. Uh, 40, 30, 20 years ago. I I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I, I, God, I would hope so. Um, all the evidence is there, radiological, neurological, neurosurgical, pathological. The acoustic evidence is uh, a very detailed study of the acoustics in uh, Dealey Plaza that day by uh, two groups of the most eminent acoustics experts in the world. And none of that has seemed to have uh, been able to budge federal government still withholding tens of thousands of pages uh, on that investigation conducted by the Warren Commission. Unbelievable. Dr. Wecht, thank you so much. I hope you are enjoying your semi-retirement there in Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh many, many times living in Pennsylvania, so I know it well, and I'm sure you served Allegheny County very well. That was truly an eye-opening conversation, and what a career Dr. Wecht has had. You can get his book, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, on Amazon by clicking the link in the description on talkfor2.com. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at talkfor2 and Instagram at talkfor2pod. 
Reach out to me directly at talkfor2cast at gmail.com. And of course, we also have TikTok, which I always forget to mention, at talkfor2. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of Talk for Two. Dr. Cyril Wecht is our guest today on this, the fourth day of Mystery Week. He is a name known to many in forensics. He has consulted on some of the most high-profile cases— Dr. Wecht is a forensic pathologist. Put bluntly, he is somebody who studies dead bodies and performs autopsies with an eye toward figuring out how a person died and maybe even who killed them. Dr. Wecht has released a new memoir, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, where he posits his theories on the many, many infamous cases he worked throughout his six-decade career. It's available on Amazon, and I have linked to it in the description box on talkfor2.com. In this interview, we begin by talking about what makes one interested in studying corpses. But the conversation quickly turned to some of his theories regarding the deaths of several famous murder victims. His theory on Jean Benet Ramsey, in particular, varies from the mainstream. Here now to tell us how the dead talk to him, our interview with Dr. Cyril Wecht. Dr. Cyril Wecht, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Fine, thank you. I hope you and your family are all well. Well, thank you very much. I want to begin uh, by talking a little bit about your life and your career. We'll talk about the book towards the end. In the middle, I want to get into some of the the cases that you consulted on. But first, I really want to know, we've never had a medical examiner uh, on the program before. How did you come to an interest in this field of medicine? Well, uh, at first I had decided... um, after a couple of years in medical school, that I wanted to look into the possibility of earning a law degree and uh, combining uh, all of the um, activities that one deals with at the interface of law and medicine. So I searched around and finally contacted someone who was an authority at that time. I got good information, made a decision that I would uh, acquire a law degree. So I worked it out during my residency in pathology at the University Veterans Administration Hospital after graduation from medical school and a year of internship that I would uh, go to law school. Also, they gave me permission to do it as long as I kept up with my work. So I was doing full-time residency in full-time law school. I did that for two years at the University of Pittsburgh. Then the Air Force grabbed me, and I was in there for two years as a captain pathologist uh, at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. When I got out, I uh, needed one more year of forensic pathology in my third year of law school. I did that at the University of Maryland Law School in the evening and my forensic pathology at the office of the Chief Medical Examiner of Maryland in Baltimore. So that's what I decided to do. And I've been very pleased um, to uh, have these combined degrees in law and medicine You do not have to have a law degree to be a forensic pathologist, but knowing about the law and knowing about how attorneys function is very helpful in dealing with all of the matters that you encounter uh, as a forensic pathologist and that the medical legal interface, uh, medical malpractice, homicide, all kinds of personal injuries, rape, sexual assault, drug cases, product liability, wrongful death. You name it. So that's the field. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I loved about reading. I've just started. I just cracked open your book, uh, took a perusal on some of the cases you talk about. And you talk about it using both your forensic pathology experience and your understanding of the law and how lawyers practice law. What is the one thing 
that juries don't understand about forensic pathology? What, what, where are those issues when you go to testify that could trip a jury up? Well, uh, one thing that uh, people don't understand, including an awful lot of doctors, uh, is that forensic pathology, like other fields of medicine, is not an absolute science. Mm-hmm. Mathematics, <clears throat> physics, and chemistry are absolute sciences. In the field of medicine, only cellular DNA is an absolute science. So the people can have different opinions. That's number one. Um, so people get uh, sometimes uh, very upset and uh, surprised. How can there be two different opinions as to uh, the circumstances leading to the death and maybe even as to the cause of death and certainly the manner of death. That's number one. Number two, what people don't understand is that forensic pathologists working in medical examiner's offices have a frequent contact with and develop, uh, you know, just personal professional relationships with law enforcement. And therefore, a lot of my colleagues, in my opinion, uh, bend over backwards to work with and accommodate uh, law enforcement officers. And that is why I uh, have been you know, somewhat successful with my medical legal consultations. I don't say that in a boastful fashion, mm-hmm. but what I mean is that, you know, many cases over the years, which uh, have been labeled one way or another by a local medical examiner, uh, juries have turned around and uh, arrived at a different opinion following my testimony. It wasn't anything magical or special on my part other than a presentation of the facts and analysis of those facts that uh, gave them a, a different perspective of that particular death. Well, you bring that up and you talk about that in the book, about walking that fine line, about getting paid very well to consult. But at the end of the day, you're very you're very open if you don't feel you can come to the conclusion, whichever side is hiring you to consult, you can't come to a favorable conclusion. Therefore, you won't do it. Is that a hard line to walk or is that something very easy for somebody as principled as yourself? Well, um, I don't want to make myself into uh, some fantastically uh, overly principled person. Uh, What I will say is that I have tried very hard Mm -hmm. in my practice now of 58 years uh, to maintain my objectivity, Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with these matters in an unbiased fashion. And therefore, I am proud to say that I think I have retained my credibility. It it won't take long in this business if uh, people come to believe that you're available uh, and that you'll give opinions based upon what they need uh, and just bend and twist facts. Uh, So I'm very proud of the fact that I continue to receive consultations from attorneys all over the country and sometimes from other countries in the world. Um, After 58 years, people know that I'm going to give an honest opinion. And so far as declining cases, sometimes that happens. And I've had some big cases where I gave opinions that the attorneys did not like. And so I did not then uh, testify. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that happens. Now, you're a Pennsylvania guy. I'm a Pennsylvania guy, too, originally. How important has living and working in Allegheny County been to your career? Well, I don't know that Allegheny County is different, frankly, from any other um, you know, relatively small, uh, medium-sized metropolitan area. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything special. Mm-hmm. But what uh, practicing in Allegheny County did was to allow me to run for coroner, so that I was coroner of Allegheny County for 20 years, two yep. separate 10-year periods. And that is what really uh, gave me a great deal of background in dealing with these matters and coming to understand how the medical examiner and a forensic pathologist needs to function with judges, criminal um, attorneys, prosecution, defense, civil attorneys, plaintiff and defense, uh, public health agencies, uh, families, and so on. Uh, That is what you get from being a coroner. You don't get that uh, right away just by becoming a medical examiner doing autopsies. Right. Totally, totally very good insight there. Want to switch to these cases that you've worked on, two in particular that fascinate me. I want to start with the, I'm sure you get asked about this a million times over, the Jean Benet Ramsey case. What is fascinating to me about that is it's like the clue board game of murder mysteries. It all happened in 
in that house, very, very unlikely that there was an intruder. You talk about this in the book. Um, very unlikely that there was an intruder, yet this puzzle has had a lot of moving pieces that haven't exactly fit for decades. And you posit something in the book, I'll let you explain, that I hadn't even thought of. That, that so, yes. So what is your feeling on what happened in that house in 96? I do not believe there was an outside intruder. I think that's a sheer uh, poppycock. Mm-hmm. I believe that what happened was that John Ramsey um, was doing things with the little girl who mm-hmm. was a surrogate. Uh, Patsy Ramsey, his wife, former Miss West Virginia, had stage four ovarian cancer. She had had surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. She was out of the sex business. And I think the little girl uh, was a, a surrogate. I believe that the father was engaged in um, uh, not not uh, penile per vagina, but mm-hmm. uh, other other kinds of uh, sexual games. Uh, there's microscopic uh, physical evidence of that present in the autopsy, which uh, uh, people seem to have missed or not paid attention to. And I believe that the rope around the little girl's neck, designed to give him pleasure vicariously, not her, led to a vagal reflex, the vagus nerve, one on the right, one on the left, tenth of... Uh, and 12 cranial nerves coming down from the brain inside the neck into the chest cavity fibers going to the lungs and heart controlling respiratory and cardiac activity when you get pressure on the neck and it doesn't have to mean firm pressure like strangulation and i don't believe that uh, he in any way attempted to strangle her but sometimes pressure uh, may lead to a vagal reflex causing the heart to beat slowly bradycardia resulting in cardiorespiratory arrest This is what I believe happened. An eight and a half inch fracture of her skull produced only seven cc's of blood. That's a teaspoon and a half. There's no way in the world that a smash on the head producing that kind of a fracture is going to cause a subdural hemorrhage of seven cc's. Mm -hmm. It's going to produce a lot of bleeding before you die. That blow was inflicted when she was already dead or dying to make it appear that she had been assaulted by an outside intruder. And then the cockamamie ransom note, we represent a small foreign faction and the demand of $118,000, a nice round figure, right? $118,000, which is exactly <laughs> the bonus that Ramsey had received from his company the year before. Yeah, uh, it's, it's this year. And then after having, according to the uh, intruder theory, the guy coming into the um, home without awakening anybody knowing where the little girl's room was and then going down a back set of stairs into a room in the basement that the homicide detectives who went there at six o'clock in the morning looking for the body never even knew to look into it didn't even know there was such a room john ramsey took his then best friend later his worst enemy another multi-millionaire businessman named fleet white down there and they opened that room at one o'clock seven hours later And uh, there indeed was the girl's body. So anyway, uh, this outside intruder, uh, he knows how to do all that. He knows how to find pen and paper in the middle of the night in a strange house. He uh, writes the ransom note. And then after having done all of that, he leaves. What does he forget? One thing. He forgets to take the body. 45-pound package. You've gone to all of this incredible, perverted but courageous activity. And you've written the note. So, my God, but then you leave the house and you leave the body with the ransom note? Think about that. That's your uh, that's your outside intruder. Right. So what went wrong with the investigation? You allude to their wealth as playing a factor. Was it a botched investigation or were they just too rich to be considered? A combination of things. They had had only one homicide in Boulder County, Colorado that year and one, I think, the year before. They had no no experience at all. Uh, they did not call in the Colorado um, State Police. They did not call in the FBI. Um, uh, they proceeded to handle this. They were inept. Number one. Number two, they never interrogated John and Patsy Ramsey immediately in separate rooms. They did not do that. That's the first thing you would do, obviously, in a case like this where a child is missing. You want to interrogate the parents right away. They never, never did that. And then you have the DA, Alec Alex Hunter, um, who uh, had a plea bargain rate of 98.5%. Uh, you know, I'm not prosecutorially biased, and I understand um, uh, how the law works, but uh, Alex Hunter was not interested in pursuing cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have an inexperienced um, <clears throat> a 
DA who should never have been a prosecutor, and you have the totally uh, inexperienced local police and uh, the failure to do those kinds of things. And that resulted in the case then being bungled from the very beginning. Then Patsy Ramsey died, and uh, you know a couple of attempts to open it up were thwarted, and the family succeeded themselves and through others in getting these wild assertions and allegations made, sometimes against specific other people. One guy who was a neighbor looked like Santa Claus. I tried to blame him, and uh, then they came up with uh, you know the outside intruder theory, and uh, they managed then to wiggle by, and that's what happened. Yeah. The other case I want to talk to you about before we talk more about the book uh, is a case you talk about in the book that I followed growing up, and that's the Casey Anthony case. And I very specifically want to ask you, you talk about the CSI effect and juries needing needing a smoking gun. What could the prosecution have done differently as it relates maybe to the the situation with young Kaylee's body to to make it clear, hey, we don't have the physical evidence, but this is how it lines up. Because that is a case I think we all agree should have been a slam dunk, and she walked. Yes, absolutely. And that was a case I started off by being consulted by the um, defense attorney, and uh, I didn't like it at all, and uh, I got out of the case early on. I agree with you completely. That case should have been a slam dunk. I think one mistake was they overdid it. They should not have gone for first-degree murder. Uh, I think uh, that kind of uh, held the jury back a little bit. Uh, You know, it's a homicide case, no question. Um, Manslaughter, second degree. But first degree, which, uh, you know, might have led to capital punishment, I think turned off. And the second thing was that uh, they didn't do as good a job as they should have done in presenting all of the evidence. Uh, this case has bothered me greatly from an emotional standpoint, thinking of what uh, that mother got away with, uh, accusing her own father, the grandfather of the child. I think he was in the courtroom, and she she said that the child had drowned at the swimming pool and that her father had taken the child and buried it. Can you believe that? Absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, well... That's why we have double jeopardy, you know. What's done is done, and oh, yeah. can't write that wrong. But, That's right. Um, this book is a fascinating look at your life in forensic pathology. Why now? Why write this now, and what prompted it? Well, um, I'm not retiring, but I am, you know, I may be getting toward the, the end of my career, another couple of years or, or whatever. Um not that I have that much free time, but I felt if I'm ever going to do something like this, I, I would and, and should do it now. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I felt I you know, kind of owed it to myself uh, to set forth a lot of things, not just on cases about which I have written and published in many other books, including a book, for example, on who killed John Benet Ramsey. That's a paperback all by mm-hmm. itself. But <clears throat> I wanted to set forth things that have happened to me, some of the legal trials and travails, uh, two trials in which I was <clears throat> accused uh, of, of felonies, one <laughs> in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in federal western Pennsylvania, uh, 84 felony count and so on. I had to deal with that over a period of four years, cost me millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and I wanted to show how prosecutorial offices can be and are and it's not, I'm not saying it's frequent, but I don't know that it's so rare either, used in a subverted, perverted fashion for political, personal reasons, vendettas, um, political <clears throat> uh, people that uh, they want to uh, handle. Uh, so uh, putting all of that together, um, I decided that I would do that. Great. It's a fantastic read. Real quick before we let you go, your position on the JFK uh, assassination is very, very well documented. I had Oliver Stone, uh, who, of course, did the JFK movie, which is not uh, yes. kind to the Warren Commission, had him on this program. Will we ever get the real truth? 
Well, you know, I was a consultant to Oliver Stone in that movie, and he yes. and I have become good friends. I've been dealing with the JFK assassination uh, since 1966 when I gave a paper at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. And in 1972, I was the first non-government appointed, non-government sponsored forensic pathologist given access to the autopsy materials at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And that's when I pointed out that the president's brain had not been examined as it should have been. And the president's brain was missing. It was gone. Um, and uh, the reason for that is because examination of the brain would have shown conclusively that the president was struck in the head by two bullets, one from the right front, a picket fence behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll, and another one from the rear. Um, the Warren Commission report is sheer, unadulterated nonsense. Uh, the basis, the sine qua non of the Warren Commission report is the single bullet theory uh, that has one bullet <clears throat> producing seven wounds and two men changing directions in midair, right to left, uh, up to down, uh, emerging after breaking two large bones in John Conley, a six foot four big bone Texan, uh, near pristine with no deformity at all, except at the base a little bit from the impact, the copper jacket, a lead core bullet completely intact with the weight loss of only one and a half percent of its original weight. That's the single bullet theory upon which the Warren Commission report is based. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, yeah, people should get into that. Do I ever think it'll be solved? I used to think so. Uh, 40, 30, 20 years ago. I I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Um, I, I, God, I would hope so. Um, all the evidence is there, radiological, neurological, neurosurgical, pathological. The acoustic evidence is uh, a very detailed study of the acoustics in uh, Dealey Plaza that day by uh, two groups of the most eminent acoustics experts in the world. And none of that has seemed to have uh, been able to budge federal government still withholding tens of thousands of pages uh, on that investigation conducted by the Warren Commission. Unbelievable. Dr. Wecht, thank you so much. I hope you are enjoying your semi-retirement there in Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh many, many times living in Pennsylvania, so I know it well, and I'm sure you served Allegheny County very well. That was truly an eye-opening conversation, and what a career Dr. Wecht has had. You can get his book, The Life and Deaths of Cyril Wecht, on Amazon by clicking the link in the description on talkfor2.com. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest episodes. Also, subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, at talkfor2, and Instagram, at talkfor2pod. Reach out to me directly at talkfor2cast at gmail.com. And, of course, we also have TikTok, which I always forget to mention, at talkfor2. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there, to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>